0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. For those of you new to the show, I am the founder and president of the Center for Industrial Progress. Uh, And on this week's show, we are going to discuss the article that you can see here on your screen, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math by Bill McKibben. Uh, This article has been all over the web it's been a sensation. If you look at it, if you can see it's got 86,000 likes, which is a lot for this kind of, you know, fairly academic type article. Um, 9,000 tweets, um, 3,000 comments, many, many positive. Um, And it's just been extravagantly praised all over the web. Uh, Now, my colleague, uh, Dr. Eric Dennis and I, Eric is a a uh, physicist who's also uh, an expert in mathematical modeling and has studied these is- issues extensively, we both judge this article as incredibly pseudoscientific and not worthy of scientific attention. And more broadly, we've uh, judged that most of the claims of catastrophic uh, global warming have serious, serious uh, scientific deficiencies and methodological uh, deficiencies. Uh, but, of course, we see all the time that this is, this is stated as revealed science. And part of what made McKibben's claims so compelling is that he said it's really, really simple and no one can argue with it. So if we see here, he says, three simple numbers that add up to global catastrophe and that make clear who the real enemy is. Uh, and we'll go into those numbers in a minute. Uh, but part of what made us disturbed by this article, but also interested in talking about it at some length, was not only the uh, positive reaction to it, which was really incredibly positive, and, and basically saying, look, it's been completely proven that global warming is catastrophic, no one can deny it, it's obvious that fossil fuel companies are evil, we need to create a movement to tell everyone they're evil, this is incontrovertible, science proves it, we, we've seen that. Um, but what was noteworthy also was there wasn't much reaction against it. Uh, given how wrong this article is in our belief, uh, it was surprising that there wasn't a lot of clear uh, opposition to it. What what we found was a lot of people emailed us and asked, you know, what do you think of this? I don't know what to think of it. And then other people... Uh, Gave a response to it, but their basic response to say, was to say, "No, this issue is really simple. It's just the other way around." And then they would give their own theory of uh, climate change. And we think both of these approaches are problematic. All three approaches are, are problematic: celebrating it, um, not knowing what to think about it because it's science, and how can we know what you know? How can we judge these scientific issues? Or having a kind of simple uh, scientific alternative. Ourselves. And so, what we decided to do is we want to address this article, but what we really want to address is what we think is the problem at the root of this and of really 99% of the culture's confusion about the global warming issue. And that is that we are never really taught how to evaluate scientific claims. So, that's what we're going to focus on uh, today. And I'm going to click over here. And you're going to see that uh, we've got a fairly sophisticated outline here. And the reason for this is I really want to go step by step so that you can see systematically how to think about these issues and where Bill McKibben is wrong and how you, even if you're not a scientist, can know that he's wrong, can know there's something deeply corrupt about the way that he and other so-called scientific people are approaching the issue of climate. So, let's start out by just recapitulating his argument uh, pretty quickly. So, it's basically that the proof of global warming catastrophe is simple. Scientists have determined three simple numbers that tell us where we are in the cycle of climate and disaster and what we need to do. So, the first number is two degrees Celsius. That's the amount of warming that we our planet can allegedly tolerate and we can allegedly tolerate before it's a complete catastrophe. The second number is 565 gigatons, which is the amount of CO2 that would allegedly cause this borderline uh, catastrophe. And then the third number is 2,795 gigatons, which is the amount of CO2 emissions that are expected to occur in the coming decades. And he says, if you do the math, look, it's two degrees, That's simple, 565 gigatons is all we can afford. 2795, that's about five times as much as 565. That means we're headed for a mega catastrophe. And he concludes we need to ban at least 80% of fossil fuels. And we can only do that successfully by identifying fossil fuel companies as evil and starting a movement to make everyone believe that they're evil. And he says many, many negative things uh, about the producers of fossil fuels who, incidentally, produce 85% of the energy that powers the world. Um, his He cites a prediction, which he apparently agrees with, that the temperature on our current path will rise almost 11 degrees Fahrenheit, which would create a planet straight out of science fiction. So science tells us all this. We're on our way, almost guaranteed, to create a planet out of science fiction unless we drastically, drastically uh, reduce course. All right, so after this citing this prediction, he does this math. We have to keep 80% of the reserves of fossil fuels locked away, which means basically we have to ban 80% of fossil fuel production and consumption. And then the key to this is building a movement, identifying fossil fuel companies as public enemy number one. And again, it's all simple science. So I want to ask you, what do you think of this reasoning? And what do you think of this article particular? And what do you think of the claims of catastrophic global warming in general? Or do you think you're qualified to have any kind of opinion? Do we just need to go by what we're told science says? Or is there something that we can do to critically think about it and even identify uh, very big falsehoods in things that, quote, science says? So if you haven't read the article, I'd recommend that you pause right now uh, and read it. And I want you to notice his repeated appeals to scientists, how certain they are. He either says they're certain or they're near certain. It's almost impossible. They could be wrong. And then also he has this thing he likes to do if he cites large amounts of either facts or apparent facts as incontrovertibly proving his case. And if you go to Bill McKibben's Twitter feed, um, it's just an incredible stream of an overwhelming stream of quote unquote facts report to prove that we're heading toward a uh, catastrophe. So, you can check this out right now. Here's a link to the article, uh, Bitly McKibben Math. So, go read that if you already haven't. Think about how you judge the claims. All right. So, our take is you can judge the claims. Now, you can't know everything about science, but there's certain questions you can ask that will enable you to really ferret out a lot of people trying to put stuff over you and that gets to our next point which is that there's no option to whether we who are not scientists now eric who's going to join us in a minute uh is a scientist I mean, he's a physics phd uh, i'm not a trained scientist but so th- those of us who aren't and even those who are, of us who are because most people in science are specialists in one thing they're not universal uh experts. You know, This isn't the days of ancient Greece when you know, one scientist could know all of science that was known at the time. And anyway, the reason why we all need to be able to think critically about science is that history teaches us that scientific certainty or near certainty is one of the most common justifications for unscientific or pseudoscientific government coercion. So there's, and, and we'll get into this. So let's, let's um, we've discussed this actually in a previous episode on the Merchants of Despair episode, so go listen to that if you want some more details, but um, just to give you an indication now, there was this whole belief that was viewed as completely scientific for a very long time, really, it still exists today among a lot of environmentalists, but was viewed as just obvious uh, maybe four decades ago, and, and even throughout the centuries of Overpopulation, that the human population is inevitably going to be overpopulated. And therefore, the incontrovertible conclusion was we need coercive population control measures. So we need to sterilize people. Um, you know, we need to have things like the one child uh, policy. Many American environmentalists praised China for that kind of thing. And it, that turned out to be completely bogus. Many people just common sense thought, no, you, this can't be right for the government to just prevent me from having children. I'm responsible for my kids. I'll take responsibility. But to tell me I can't fulfill my dream of having children, that has to be wrong. And their, their common sense was actually correct. We have a much better fed world now with 7 billion people than we did in you know the late 1960s with 3.8 uh, billion people. And so the, quote, science that everyone was fed at the time was completely wrong. Uh, Another historical example is what they called the degradation of the gene pool. This was the justification for a lot of measures to try to genetically control the population, which meant things like forced sterilization, Uh, not allowing certain people to have children on the grounds that there was this catastrophe of the gene pool uh, degrading and that this was somehow proven by the theory of evolution and there was a wide consensus. And I've read a lot about this uh, in the bioethics literature. And if you look at the old bioethics literature, you know, early 1900s, it's just all over the place, eugenics. This is scientific, the gene pool, it's a disaster. So there's always this pattern of there's this disaster, we're predicting it, we're certain of it, and therefore, and you have to accede to science. Who are you to tell science uh, that it's not right? You need to comply. And if you think it's going to be really destructive, well, we judge better. We're science, or we are the. For journalists, we are the messengers of science. And then finally, a more mundane or uh, thing that you that you are probably familiar with, if you're let's say above the age of twenty five. Is the whole food pyramid propaganda, which basically argued to everyone that eating lots of starch, and some people interpret it as sugar, is the key to human health, and that any kind of fat uh, is bad. And I actually remember following this when I was young and interested in nutrition, and a lot of people did, and they gained a lot of weight, because uh, by all indications, this theory is completely wrong. And yet it was promoted as science, as nutrition, as something that should be taught to every school child because it's science, and who can argue with science? So, one implication of all of this, when we're thinking about global warming, catastrophic global warming, I should say, is we need to be open to the possibility that this falls into the same category, and thus that when Bill McKibben and others claim that we need to get rid of almost all our fossil fuels, which are the source of the vast majority of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy that our lives depend on, that they are deeply wrong and that they are putting something over on us and that, that the alleged claims of science are not in fact science at all. You have to acknowledge that as a possibility because history is incontrovertible on this issue. So number one thing just to think about, anytime you hear someone try to force something on you or say, oh, science says this, it's obvious, these things are not obvious. So y- You have the right and the responsibility to think uh, critically about them. And then the second implication of this is what this whole show is about, which is um, we need a way of critically thinking about uh, scientific claims. Everyone does, scientists for the reason I said, and, uh, and non-scientists. And at CIP, we have a method for doing just that. Now, I wrote here, I wrote that we have four essential questions. In fact, we had four before, but we boiled it down to three to make it that much easier to remember. And now uh, let me bring on my essential partner here um, to talk about these questions and help me break them down, and also to talk about the McKibben piece and Catastrophic Global Warming um, uh, is uh, Dr. Eric Dennis, and he is going to give you um, a more scientist perspective on the issue, and I'll give you more of the philosopher's perspective, and I think together... I think you're really going to learn a lot. This is, a, this is an issue of how to think about these issues that we've been talking about for years, and I really think uh, we have some clarifying things. So, Eric, are you there? Welcome to Power Hour.
0: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: So, we got three questions to ask about any scientific claim. First one, and we're going to go into all of these in depth, using McKibben as a case study. The first one is exactly what is being claimed and by whom. So exactly what is being claimed and by whom. Number two is what knowledge and ability would they need? Really pay attention to that. What knowledge and ability would they need in order to prove that claim? And do they have it? And a key aspect of this that we'll get into is that the answer is often that people are claiming knowledge and abilities that no one has. There are many issues that we simply do not have the knowledge uh to um to do. I mean, we don't know how to make an intergalactic spaceship. So if someone claims they have they have a really really high threshold of proof. Pretty much they have to show you an intergalactic uh spaceship. If they say they're a scientist of intergalactic spaceships, that doesn't change anything. It's still a problem that human beings don't know have the knowledge right now to know the solution to. And so finally, after we know what knowledge and ability they would need, we need to know what are the philosophies and incentives of everyone involved. And this is super, super important and not thought about. We can't just assume that people are are just acting automatically to identify the truth and that's it. Um, and we'll see even if they are, if even if they're trying to, philosophies and incentives can uh, misshape how they do things. So we need to be aware of that. So let's... Um, Let's move on to McKibben. Eric, do you have anything to say about those three questions before we move on?
0: Uh, no, let's go ahead and get into the meat.
1: All right. So McKibben on catastrophic global warming. Exactly what is being claimed and by whom? And what I what I want to warn you about uh, at the beginning is vagueness, which is a danger sign. Um, and it means someone is trying to get away with something. If they talk about either... Um, who like who the scientists are? If they're really vague about that, or they're very vague about what is being claimed, um, that's a sign that they're not being clear. Because it's, it's a very different thing for a small group of scientists to uh, advocate something really to believe something really dramatic versus a large group of scientists who can agree on something uh, very uh, benign. And McKibben, if you read the article, and I, ho- I hope you've read it, is very vague about who exactly supports his claims. He always talks about quote scientists as if it's this uniform collection of people who all believe the same thing and, and who have derived these brilliant conclusions independently. Um, and that is a, that is a big warning sign because that is not how science works at all. And so he says, look, so far we've raised the average temperature of the planet to just under 0.8 degrees Celsius or just under 0.8 degrees Celsius. And that has caused far more damage than the scientists expected. Now, who are the scientists or most scientists. There's no clarity in that, and you could make very strong objections that this is very uh, false. If you look at our environmental quality today, just from a common sense perspective, we live in the greatest environment in history. And then again, he says, if you paid attention to the scientists and kept 80% of it underground. So here, the scientists, apparently all scientists, say that we should ban 80% of our most practical forms of energy. So that is very... uh, Dubious. I mean, because 80% of scientists do definitely do not say this. So, what's going on here is that they agree on global warming and climate change, quote, scientists do, in the vaguest, most meaningless sense, which can mean a million different things. So, Eric, could you talk about like the range of views that come under, quote, global warming?
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, there is the view which uh, basically all scientifically informed people take, which is that over the last uh, 100 years or so, there, there's been uh, somewhat less than a one degree Celsius increase in global average temperature, uh, insofar as you even think that's a meaningful quantity, but let's not get into that. Um, so everyone kind of agrees that we've, we've gotten a, a little bit warmer over the last 100 years. That's kind of the bargain basement view. Um, There's the view which also I'd say a vast majority of of scientists take that um, humans have contributed in part to that by uh, carbon dioxide emissions and that the greenhouse effect uh, by which carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere, um, that's a a finite measurable effect uh, that has contributed uh, to that. Uh, around 0.8 degree Celsius temperature increase over the last hundred years. Um, there's the view that it's been a major uh, a major contributor uh, to that uh, that temperature increase, and there's also the view that it could potentially increase temperatures by say another degree or so into the future. Um, then there are all kinds of uh, there, there are all kinds of views on a spectrum of how much more extremely it could c- contribute to warming in the future. So, um, you know, at, at the extreme end, there are people, uh, one, of wh- one of whom is McKibben, clearly, who, who thinks that uh, greenhouse, the greenhouse effect and the various uh, climate processes referred to as feedbacks that piggyback on top of the greenhouse effect, that these things will cause a catastrophic increase in, in Earth temperatures. And then there are uh, views that it'll cause merely a much more moderate uh, increase in temperature over time. So there, there there's a whole range of views about uh, how much CO2 has contributed to past warming and how much it's likely to contribute to future warming. And there are also a whole range of views about uh, the the possible effects of warming at any different level. So even if we assume that there's a couple degrees of Celsius warming over the next 100 years, it's not at all clear that that's a bad thing. Um, there are people who assert that it's a terrible catastrophic thing. There are people who think it's actually gonna be a good thing. Um, so there, there are differences not only on uh, the amount of warming that's likely to occur, the, the degree to which CO2 contributes to that warming, um, and the, the way that's going to affect our lives. So the, on on multiple issues, there's kind of a, a spectrum of views, and it's only one little corner of that whole space of views that results in the idea that there's there's going to be a massive warming that it's it's all due to CO two and that it's going to have a terrible destructive um, effect on us. That is, you know, a, a relatively I think in absolute terms a narrow and improbable view. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's held by many people.
1: Yeah. And we'll, we'll discuss when we get to the issue of philosophies and incentives, how it can seem as if such a narrow view is in fact a, uh, a universal view. I just, uh, so I wrote some of the, uh, the bullet points that Eric was mentioning here. I just want to add one thing, which is that there's also a lot of controversy over the, uh, the use of technology to adapt to any given climate issue. Because if we take a look at the 20th century, for example, uh, the data is pretty clear that, uh, let's say conservatively speaking, climate-related deaths in the U.S. fell by well over 90 percent, even despite this global warming that everyone is worried about. And what that points to is that a key determinant of the livability of climate is the level of technology. And the level of technology, a key determinant of that, a fundamental determinant of that, is the level of of energy. And so fossil fuels are what enable, have given us a much more livable climate so far. And thus, many of the forecasts about this factor in uh, human technology uh, and take it, it seriously. So, all of these are being blended into the scientists and global warming. And then they are used to make it seem like all scientists um, agree with McKibben. Now, McKibben, what he is saying. Is incredibly, incredibly dramatic and comprehensive because he's actually really making three incredibly controversial claims that would be really hard to prove. So, one is that man made CO2 emissions are bringing about a dramatic and unprecedented warming. We'll talk mostly about that one. Uh, The second is that this is a catastrophe that justifies a near ban on the vast majority of fossil fuels. And the third, um, sorry. The second, let's let let's divide that up. The second is that this is a catastrophe. And then the third is that this catastrophe justifies a near ban on the vast majority of fossil fuels. We'll see with all of these why there's a lot of variation in opinion and why they're, I mean, to say they're not obvious would be an enormous, enormous uh, understatement. All right. So there, there's this real uh, bait and switch acting as if these scientists, as if all scientists agree with this uh extreme conclusion on McKibben's part. And I think this all points to that it's really clear, really important, I should say, to understand exactly what a claim is so that we can judge the evidence that supports it. And just if you read the beginning of the article, this should become really clear. He's He talks about from if the pictures of those towering wildfires in Colorado haven't convinced you or the size of your AC bill this summer. Now, just stop on that. Wildfires or the size of an AC bill, as in it being hotter, is supposed to convince you that there's a world that there's some dramatic amount of global warming coming that we're not going to be able to adapt to it and that we need to throttle any and all fossil fuel companies. Like the idea that you could jump from one to the other is is what this vagueness uh, makes possible. And it's it's I mean this kind of fact proves nothing by itself. And then he talks about, uh, well, actually, Eric, can you talk about this claim—the one that uh, these hard numbers that June broke are tied third, third, um, 3,215 high temperature records—and this supposedly proves that it's unprecedented and and, uh, dramatic.
0: Right, and there's a lot of this. I hear this all the time about people drumming up these little micro records that are supposedly broken all the time, and it's as if. If the number of these little micro records that are broken increases to some unprecedented level, then that means we're getting really, really warm. What's really happening is just, uh, as people, essentially everyone acknowledges, over the last uh, 100, 150 years, there's been a a noticeable, measurable warming of the planet. Uh, We're coming out of what people refer to as the Little Ice Age, uh, which had prevailed, you know, Um, maybe was deepest in the 1600s and we're kind of coming out of that now. And it is the case that over that period, since there's been this natural increase in temperatures which started way before humans in any substantial way started putting out large quantities of carbon dioxide, um, we are kind of at the top uh, of, of that trend over this recent period of history. And so just as a statistical fact, if we're at the top and we're kind of bumping around the top, you're gonna have these artificial little records made all the time. But the important thing is that over the last 10 years, there's really been no statistically significant uh, increase in global temperatures. So that's 10 years, that's a whole decade of data. And we've just kind of been bumping up and down, but around the same level. And so all of these little micro records uh, can be made. And that's still consistent with the fact that we haven't really warmed over the last 10 years. So what you need to do is look at a graph of temperature um, and just see what the warming has been and when it occurred and and the fact that it basically stopped 10 years ago. That's not to say it won't continue. Uh, but all of these recent records about what's been going on over the last couple of years or months uh, really are not reflective of any kind of catastrophic or unprecedented warming they're just kind of a statistical artifact of the last couple hundred years of natural temperature variation.
1: Yeah, so we're I mean we're on a um you know, we're on a, a, a an upward slope that's somewhat natural, probably somewhat man-made and thus yeah, when, if we're on an upward slope then you can expect certain records to be set especially given there are a million uh categories of records. It, it occurs to me, uh, Eric, can you just explain the issue of the greenhouse effect? Because I think a lot of people think that the greenhouse effect implies uh, like a parabolic or, you know, this this upward, uh, right. dramatic upward uh, trend, and it turns out to be exactly the opposite.
0: Yeah, it is exactly the opposite. What the greenhouse effect is, first of all, physically, I, I kind of mentioned it before, is just you have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's light coming down to the earth from the sun, um, it is reflected off of the surface of the Earth, and normally it would, if there were, say, no atmosphere, it would just go back out into space. But what, happen, uh, what happens is that the light that, that is reflected back, and really mostly it's not visible light, it's, it's uh, infrared uh, electromagnetic energy that's important here. So um, the, same, the same kind of energy that you, know, you use when you uh, click your, your remote control on your television... It's, it's just like light, it's just slightly out of the visible range so we can't see it. That energy reflected back from the Earth's surface into the atmosphere is absorbed by carbon dioxide. And it's absorbed meaning that the energy basically hits a carbon dioxide molecule and it makes it rattle around. Well, when mo- molecules rattle around, that's what temperature is. Uh, when you make them rattle around a little more because there's a little more in- energy coming into them, you increase in temperature. So the the greenhouse effect is just this kind of natural thing that uh, the carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere, and it's not only carbon dioxide. In fact, uh, by far the biggest uh, greenhouse gas is water vapor. Um, So there are are a number of greenhouse gases, one of which is carbon dioxide, and they have this tendency to trap uh, essentially sunlight, but infrared radiation that's reflected off of the surface of the Earth and keep it in the atmosphere. so, uh, sorry. Uh, what? Uh,
1: so well, so the so the issue is so one, and that, that's really helpful. But once we have identified that the causality of it, how is it impacted by increasing concentrations of CO two? Does it get real? Does it start to get warmer faster or warmer right. slower?
0: Right. Exactly. So this is a, this effect is very well understood. It's it's actually this effect itself, just in isolation. This one effect of how how much a CO two molecule. Uh, how much energy it'll absorb is is very well understood. There are, you know, precise physical theories that tell us what'll happen. We can make observations that exactly verify uh, those those predictions. And what we find is that there's not, uh, there's not an exponential increase in temperature as you increase uh, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. There's not even a linear increase in temperature as you increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, there's uh, a logarithmic increase in temperature, meaning um, that the marginal effect of adding a little more CO, CO2 into the atmosphere is increasingly small as we get more CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, so it's it's kind of the opposite in terms of the greenhouse effect itself. It's the opposite of what they lead you to believe. Now, there are uh, the theories, their climate models, rely on a whole bunch of other much, much less understood uh, mechanisms uh, that are supposed to exist in the Earth's climate um, to, to achieve this radical, supposedly catastrophic increase in temperatures due to a, a relatively small change in the forcing, the increase in CO2. But the the part of it that we know very well, the the greenhouse effect itself, the behavior of CO2 molecules, that effect is uh, is much smaller than the overall effect that they're claiming.
1: Right. So if 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 we go to these simple numbers, you know, increasing the number of, of gigatons for every new gigaton. It's you know it's just making it a little bit warmer and then a little less warmer after that. I mean, not it's not making it colder, but it's it's flattening out, so that that wouldn't be cause for concern at all. Now, this is not. I want to make clear we're not here making definitive declarations about how the climate works. We're going to talk in a minute about how uh, how corrupt that is for for people to do that. What we're just identifying is that. This is being put across in an extremely pseudoscientific way because it's it's treating these facts as self-evidently meaning this catastrophe. It's treating it as everyone agrees with this, as if it's obvious, and it's the farthest thing in the world from that. And if you read, if you hear anything Eric says, you will not find one of those things in this article. You won't even find what the greenhouse effect is. You'll, and it's meant for a general audience. It's in Rolling Stone. So what this means is that the author of this article. Is being authoritarian. He's saying science says this, that settles it, you obey. And that is not a science, that does not bode well, that is not a scientific uh, approach.
0: Yeah, and I, I just want to add one thing. One distinction that needs to be made is we certainly are asserting that there are particular phenomena that we fully understand in the climate, oh, yeah, yeah. One, of, one of which is the greenhouse effect. There are certain types of claims, and it's essential to distinguish these two types of claims. Um, there are certain types of claims which require, in order to validate them, even to, to begin to accumulate evidence for them, they require a kind of knowledge that we simply don't possess, like claims about the future development of temperatures on the Earth over a hundred year time span with any kind of precision. Um, we have to distinguish those kinds of claims from claims like the, uh, the absorption profile of a CO2 molecule is X, Uh, So uh, we're we're not here at all denying that there's a lot of powerful science that we've discovered uh, over many years of studying this that tells us a whole bunch about the climate. But one has to understand that merely because we know some things and we know them in detail and they themselves are somewhat impressive, the fact that we can access the details of, of the behavior of these infinitesimal little CO2 atoms, that's a great achievement. Nevertheless, there's just a huge chasm between that legitimate scientific knowledge and these claims that they're making, supposedly having near certainty about what global temperatures will be in 100 years
1: yeah thanks thanks for that clarification i could see how it could be misinterpreted like oh we can't know anything and that's definitely the opposite of of both of our views which brings us to the issue which i think is really um eric has helped me understand a lot and i think this really will clarify a lot what knowledge and abilities would he need in order to prove his claim so let's get into that all right eric your show
0: okay well uh So on the level of uh, the uh, kind of larger questions, the first one is before we even get into predicting the future, we need to have adequate records of the past. We need to know what past temperatures were, what past climate was like. Uh, uh, Second, uh, we need to, once we have that, knowledge and we can kind of use it as a baseline, we need to construct a physical model of what's going on in the climate. So how a whole bunch of different factors uh, that you can kind of divide into the earth, the air, the sea, and the sun, how those things are all interacting and producing all the complicated dynamics which go on and affect global temperature. Um, And then we also need to use that model given our historical data, to explain things that happened in the past in order to get some confidence that the model uh, is actually, will be predictive and is not just kind of a, a, a big garbage can of, of computer code. <laughs> uh,
1: okay. So, I mean, for me, you know, I, I think like the number one thing, I mean, just to put it in my own more layman's terms, I mean, it's, it's, can we predict, I mean, if someone says I've got a prediction of the climate, the first thing I think is, do you know how to predict the climate? Can you prove that you know how to predict the climate? What's the level of our ability in these, these three things and then the broader issue of climate prediction?
0: Right. And one thing I should add is that um, even after explaining, uh, making detailed explanations of, of past climate behavior, then before you even get an idea of doing something based on this information, you'd want to make relatively unambiguous predictions uh, that you could check. And we can do that. If, if there's going to be a catastrophe in 100 years, and we make a prediction, say 10 years out into the future, or five years out into the future, which would be much easier than predicting what's going to go on in 100 years, then we can wait five years and check it.
1: And wait, can, phot- can you just stress that? Because I, th- I don't think most people think of that as a point, but why it's easier to do five years than 100 years?
0: Sure, because the climate is a complicated system it's uh, sometimes people you might have heard uh, this concept of, of a chaotic system. Uh, it, it's a term which had some currency. It just means that if you started off in one particular state uh, it will evolve in a way which could have been totally different had you just started off in a slightly perturbed initial state. So it's very small differences in the initial configuration of the system. In, in our case what what's going on physically on the earth right now, very small differences can make big differences in the end state of the system. And that doesn't mean they have to be big differences in things like the global temperature. It could just mean the, like if, you know, the the, the little example is a butterfly flaps its wings and a day later, you know, the whole wind patterns over, uh, over the world, you know, Thousands of miles away from the butterfly have changed because of that one little perturbation It doesn't mean it's 20 degrees hotter than it would have been but the 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 detailed nature of the system has changed So what that means is that when you're physically trying to make predictions about such such a system It's extremely difficult at all uh, Because you can never get a a precise detailed uh, Trajectory of the state of the system over time you have to rely on approximations that you, you you hope there are certain regularities in, in the system that you pick up. But the point is that the more time you allow to go on, the more this chaotic mixing of, of the climate occurs, and the less you can really be confident that your model is tracking reality over that simulation period.
1: Well, so, I mean, they would say, I think, something like, you know, we're like the Warren Buffett's of modeling now, M- Buffett invests for the long term, and of course there are all these short-term fluctuations. But long term, we know that CO2, man-made CO2, drives the climate. So yeah, maybe we're off this decade, but you know we we're sure law in 50 years it's going to be horrible, even if this 10 years we botch the prediction. And you know NASA scientist James Hansen is kind of notorious for botched predictions, and McKibben refers to him as world's leading climate scientist, which I think is true and and very revealing. And uh, but that's the justification, right? Well, there are there are all these little things that got in the way, but but the real mechanism we're positing is still the fundamental, and will still determine the long term, just in the way that I don't know Coca Cola's fundamentals determined its long term,
0: right? Um, which is a convenient excuse, but I mean the problem is that these people have been putting out theories. Uh, ideas about how the climate works since at least the early 90s. I mean, it really predates that. But at least the early 90s, they've had ample time to see. I mean, we've had, um, you know, 20 years since the the start of these predictions. And if they can't get things right over 5 or 10 or 20 years, I mean, there's really no hope. We should have very little confidence that they'd get something right over the scale of 100 years.
1: So... Um, you had mentioned to me this point of can you account for difficult climate physics issues? Can you just discuss the the complexity of the problem that one is dealing with when one says, I want to be able to predict the future of the climate?
0: Sure. Uh, so there are you know basic physical questions about how energy flows uh, into and out of the oceans, uh, the the water on the earth, how it flows. Uh, you know, into the atmosphere. There are all kinds of questions about carbon dioxide itself, about uh, how much carbon dioxide is taken up by the, the upper part of the oceans. Um, there, are, there are profound questions about the clouds. Uh, clouds are an important part of the climate because they, um, they reflect a lot of the light incident from the sun back out to space, so it, it winds up not heating up the earth. Um, and the dynamics of clouds, how clouds respond when temperature changes, and it's a, it's a very complicated question. Um, there's a whole set of questions about how life, uh, and I'm not talking primarily about human beings, but vegetation, other animal life, uh, affects CO2 in the atmosphere, and, and uh, therefore, according to these particular theories, how it affects temperature. Um, there's also kind of the hardest question of them all is that we, we know a bunch of things that even if we can't be very precise, we know a bunch of different effects, how they uh, bear on the climate one way or the other, whether they, whether they heat things up or cool things down or, or tend to dampen corrections or tend to accelerate them. Well, uh, but there are probably a whole set of drivers, climate drivers, and feedback mechanisms that we just don't know about, or the magnitude of certain mechanisms we think are insignificant turns out to be not insignificant, and we just don't know about that now. And it's very difficult, given the uh, complexity of the system, to just start writing down a list and believe that you've figured out all the important causal factors.
1: Uh, is there any kind of analogy you can give to how difficult it is? Because a lot of these things, you know, people aren't, they don't think about these cloud feedbacks and energy flows and that kind of thing.
0: Right. So uh, you, you kind of mentioned one of my favorites before, which is that if someone tells you he's just designed an intergalactic spaceship that's going to take us to, uh, to you know, another galaxy out there at another place in the universe, you would kind of laugh at him because even if he's the best, most brilliant engineer in the world, we simply don't have anywhere near the sophistication that's necessary in order to accomplish that huge feat. And uh, understanding and predicting really, predicting the climate over any significant period of time is kind of like that. It's easy to formulate the problem. It's easy to put the words together, I'm going to predict what global temperatures are going to be in 100 years, and for someone who doesn't have a real sense of uh, what the the complexity of that scientific problem is, it sounds kind of just as plausible as, oh, I'm going to build a new car or something, but it's really something more on the order of I'm going to build an intergalactic spaceship uh, relative to our present abilities in, in understanding the climate.
1: So I just want to step back a second um, because you know, the focus today is really what you as a layman uh, can do. And obviously, Eric has a level of expertise in this that you know very few people have. Um, so the reason I, I wanted to ask him all those questions was just to give you an indication of, of what it looks like to take a scientific approach to these. But you don't need to be him to be able to ask these critical questions and to have a good, uh, pardon my language, BS detector. I mean, you can say you can ask like, okay, he's claiming that he knows this definitive thing. How does he know that? Like what, what, how does this seem like something that would be hard? Um, is that accurate? Eric, do you think someone can like just a normal person can ask these kinds of questions and get do good critical thinking?
0: Yeah, sure. Because I, there are a lot of things that a normal person without a lot of technical expertise can observe uh, scientists and engineers doing uh, that are really demonstrably successful like for instance the space shuttle uh, like uh, theories of physics for instance which uh, which allowed us to build semiconductor chips that now we can encode the entire spectrum of knowledge that humans have, Produced over the history of the world, we can encode that into a, a relatively small little box. When it used to take, you know, uh, rooms and rooms full of books. Um, so there, there are a number of achievements in scientific fields that are uh, relatively easy to judge by a layman. And one can, one can then kind of stack this new field, climatology and global climate prediction, in particular. One can stack its successes up against these other fields where we have a lot of uh, well-verified successes and uh, fields where uh, there was no success at all, like you know, medieval alchemy or uh, the phlogiston theory of heat. Um, so there are a number of different uh, kind of comparisons a layman can make, can make simply based on the bottom line results that the field demonstrates that don't require technical expertise. It doesn't require technical expertise to know we've been to the moon and to know what an incredible achievement that is. And so one should ask if you're making these uh, incredibly impactful recommendations for changing the entire nature of our economy, um, what are the great uh, impressive predictions you've made or successes you've had which, which should be understandable to a layman? And it's not the case that it's some kind of metaphysical necessity that anytime you have profound knowledge, you can prove it to a layman. But for a field that's making such bold claims and wants so much control, it's perfectly reasonable for a layman to ask uh, show me your, your track record, show me what you've done in terms that I can understand.
1: Yeah, and it, it seems like so prediction. I think has a big, uh, big element in terms of what you can uh, demand of someone who has a given scientific theory, because of course it's a theory of cause and effect ultimately. So if the, if there's a given set of causes and they understand, then they should be able to predict the effects. But there is, and I want to jump down a little bit, and then I'll go back um, to some of these other points. The issue of modeling, which I know you have a lot of familiarity with, it's just it's amazing how. Um, we're basically told it's kind of the same as with science. Look, the computer said this. How can you argue with computers? And uh, so we have this quote down here where he says, the 565 gigaton figure was derived from one of the most sophisticated, notice sophisticated, not accurate, computer simulation models that have been built by climate scientists around the world over the past few decades. And the number is being further confirmed by the latest climate simulation models currently being finalized in advance of the next report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, as someone who actually makes a living doing mathematical modeling and presumably does it successfully sometimes and unsuccessfully others, what is this? How convincing is this?
0: Uh, well, it, it sounds very impressive. I mean, there are sophisticated models. There's a, an intergovernmental panel. Uh, but when you when you really get down to the nitty gritty, again, when you when you bite off a problem that is orders of magnitude more difficult uh, than what you, can, what you can chew, it doesn't matter that you're in the top 0.001% of uh, the world expert climate modelers, it's just too difficult to begin with. So it, it doesn't impress me much.
1: So what is the, I mean, what is the status in terms of knowledge of all, it's got all these lines of computer code in it and all these numbers, so how do you regard those?
0: Uh, well, apart from, well, let me, let me start off by saying this anytime, and this is, this is a project which has millions of lines of computer code associated with it and, and tons and tons of detailed components within that, this model that each of them has the possibility of either corresponding to reality or not corresponding to reality. Anytime you have an undertaking like this, a massive attempt to understand an extremely complicated system, uh, there is a kind of process which tends to lead to success or at least leads to you understanding whether you've achieved success or not. And there's a, a different kind of process which just leaves you out in, out in the sky, out, out in the clouds, so to say, with, without any idea as to whether you're approaching reality or not. And the one process that leads to success is where you take each component and you test it individually. And and when you build a car, you make sure the carburetor works and you make sure the alternator works and you make sure the tires work. Uh, You don't just kind of close your eyes and take any parts irrespective of of whether they look good and throw them all together and hope your car works. So when you're building a model, you need to kind of test each of these components and think of all the possible ways you could test all of these things in combination and individually kind of in a, in a bootstrapping process that allows you to go from you know hard work and failure and then ultimately success on a subcomponent and and kind of build on that as opposed to just throwing everything together and rolling the dice on it that if if you just you know go into your your parents' basement and write a million lines of compute of computer code uh, that's an attempt to simulate some complicated system without Real uh, demonstrable tests of detailed successful predictions. If you kind of just, you know, hope it works and throw a bunch of stuff together, it, it's guaranteed uh, that it's going to be a failure. And the the strategy in climate modeling, uh, they, they they justified because the problem is so difficult. They simply don't demand a detailed level of predictivity on the same level of say a model of physics or um, uh, an engineering specification for a building uh, or even kind of like a, a financial disclosure or something that has kind of a detailed plan of how it's going to adhere to reality. There's really no detailed plan for how these climate models will adhere to reality. There's just kind of the hope that they'll throw all this stuff together, it'll look plausible. And then the end result will be something that they like.
1: All right. So with, with all of this in mind, I want to go back to just remember the beginning of this. Are, oh, sorry. Um, so we have global warming is terrifying new math. Three simple numbers that add up to global catastrophe. I mean, with all that we're talking about here, it's just so it's so corrupt to... To treat the issue as as simple, so he says, two degrees you know, two degrees Celsius. That's obviously going to lead to catastrophe. Well, no, there's no he has no means at all. I mean, he's a journalist. He has certainly no means. But even the unnamed, mostly quote scientists that he's referring to, to say that they know that two degrees Celsius is a catastrophe point, that's just that's just made up. You know, the fact that the UN said it. We'll get to that. a couple minutes does not make it more credible to say the least um and then 565 gigatons causes 2 degrees again it's just it's garbage in garbage out with these models 2795 gigatons um we don't know that it'll cause 2 degrees celsius warming with the greenhouse effect i don't think it it would alone um you know 6 degrees again it's just someone made a model who had a complete incapability of doing so and I, I want to address the issue, Eric, If you talked about even if it's the 0.1% of, of climate scientists, my my feeling is that if you're really in the 0.1% of climate scientists and you're honest, you will not participate in making public predictions that are impossible to do objectively because it's really irresponsible, and especially if it's leading to very, very dramatic changes in our way of life and dramatic cuts to the foundation of our prosperity. I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Yeah, well, there's no doubt uh, it's not the the top 0.01% climate science. I mean, it's kind of silly to talk about the category of climate scientists. We should really be talking about the category of scientists because the so-called climate science or climatology has been so politicized that it's not a, a representative selection of scientists in general who are in climate science. But there's no doubt that there's an adverse selection process by which the people who fall into climate science uh, do not tend to be the ones who are the best scientists. I mean, I've observed it myself uh, in, in physics departments. There, physics departments are, um, to a certain extent, uh, feeders into the, uh, these climate modeling projects. And it's certainly by no means the, the top physics students who are going into this stuff.
1: Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the section um, on incentives. So let's let's go. And I want to get we'll get through these much more quickly. I really wanted to go through the the um, sort of more scientific one in depth because that I think is the most confusing to people. But it's also important to go through the other two claims. So imagine so g- given that it's arbitrary to say that there's this incredible, unprecedented warming. But let's 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 stipulate for a second that it was true, because I want to point out that his second and third claims are completely baseless. And this is in a field I know much better, uh, which is economics and energy he says it not necessarily be a catastrophe. And yet, as I referred to earlier, all the evidence we have about human beings and climate is that it's energy and industrialization that's the number one determinant. I mean, when people are free, I was talking to a colleague of mine today who's a geographer, and he was just saying, look, if it was just the temperature that went up, I mean, over time, people would move just as they have in you know previous generations or millennia it's human beings are amazingly adaptive and if you don't have this religious view that it's somehow wrong for human beings to impact nature then if you look at it scientifically to say that it's obvious that it's like simple that it would be a catastrophe to have a lot of warming that's that's not true there's been a lot warmer temperatures in the past um you would need to show a lot you would need to know a lot about economics uh to make this this kind of claim and uh McKibbin doesn't even acknowledge it, except, except in this really unfair, I mean, really disturbing statement about the CEO of ExxonMobil, uh, Rex Tillerson. And this is particularly meaningful to me. I don't know Tillerson at all, but uh, this is, you know, ExxonMobil is the descendant of John D. Rockefeller, who's, in my view, one of the greatest heroes in American history for bringing petroleum and therefore light. To millions and millions of people and, and extending their days by hours and hours. And now, of course, they're they're powering the global transportation system, the global agricultural system, and there's there's nothing comparable to oil in terms of its value in terms of portable fuel. And he just, you know, callously said and but what Tillerson said was he he made the point that human beings could adapt. And um, McKibben was so offended by this that it led him to say there's not a more reckless man on the planet than Tillerson. Well, there's at least one, and his name is Bill McGibbon. So, I mean, he is nowhere near the knowledge to make this. And he, he all the evidence is he has the opposite of the knowledge. He's radically, radically ignorant. And he doesn't even acknowledge the complexity. And then finally, the third one is if there was dramatic, unprecedented warming, again, we'll, we'll stipulate that it would necessitate a near ban on fossil fuels. Now, to know that, you would have to know both the magnitude of the warming the inability of man to cope with it technologically and through freedom and capitalism, and you'd have to factor in the value of fossil fuels. And yet, guess how many times he talks about the value to human life of the source of 85% of our energy, and the source that has more than doubled the human life expectancy over the last 200 years. The source, McKibben, I uh, believe, is uh, McKibben is born in 1960, makes him about 52 years old. Um, statistically, he, he would certainly, I mean, he wouldn't make it out of, uh, you know, any of us. We wouldn't um, make it to age five, statistically. You know, 52 would be a very, very lucky man. He is alive because of fossil fuels. Um, I'm considerably younger. I probably, you know, statistically, I wouldn't be alive with fossil fuels. And yet, on not one occasion does he say, does he ascribe any benefit whatsoever. So he's treating something as simple, and yet he can't even conceive of doing like the most simple kind of cost-benefit analysis. So all he does is just assume that they're just pure evil and uh, and condemn them. And the, the one thing, and I don't have time to go into everything that's wrong with this, but the one piece of economic evidence he gives, uh, and let's leave aside whether this concrete is true, he cites one day, literally, one, where, let's get it, one sunny Saturday in late May, that Germany generated nearly half of its powers from solar panels within its borders. That's a small miracle and it demonstrates that we have the technology to solve our problems. So just like a just like a wildfire in Colorado demonstrates that we have catastrophic global warming, that we have to shut down energy production as we know it. So one day of solar producing half the energy not not even not even the whole day because obviously the sun is not on all day um so some fraction of a day there's some jolt that amounts to 50 percent somewhere on you know on the german grid that proves that we can replace all transportation all electricity in the world on mcgibben's extremely uh extremely ambitious is the wrong word but extremely devastating time scale with solar, which along with wind power has this has this uh terminal defect so far of its intermittent, so it doesn't come reliably, so the fact that you can get a jolt of it illustrates exactly the problem with it uh, as a, a German colleague of our Stefan Hen was emailing me about he has to live with the German network, including the all the extra cost it's added to electricity, and he was saying this is this proves exactly the opposite it proves that that this is um this is not exactly what you don't want. This kind of un unre- these unreliable uh, spikes. So, but but that he takes this and this is his example of why he. That's his only concern about economics. So again, he's making these two, these two um, claim. This claim of human catastrophe, and and the necessity of a certain policy, both of which involve an intimate not which require an intimate knowledge of human of human adaptability, human thought, economics. And he demonstrates himself to be radically ignorant of them. Not only radically ignorant, he doesn't acknowledge the need. For him, it's it's all simple. And all of this points to there's some kind of bias uh, going on. So before we go on, Eric, uh, do you have anything to say about those points?
0: Well, well, just one thing. It's kind of funny because he, you know, this, this whole movement is predicated on... Uh, a supposed solution to one of the most difficult conceivable scientific problems, which is predicting the climate over a hundred year time span. And the one other thing they need to cinch up this ridiculous argument is to predict the progress of of human technology over that same time span, which is one of the very few processes which one could argue is even less predictable than the climate for for a hundred year time horizon.
1: But it's more, I mean, given freedom, it's more predictable in a positive direction.
0: It's, it's the direction and the rough magnitude is predictable. But the, the, in any kind of like whether we progress by 1,000% or 2,000% over 100 years is, you know, extremely difficult to know.
1: Right, yeah. And I, I find both interesting because they don't even acknowledge... Technological progress. In fact, they think technological progress progress is the enemy because it requires uh, practical energy, and and ultimately because it requires transforming the planet. And they view that as destroying the planet, and we view that as improving the planet. All right, so we got a uh, maybe ten more minutes here. So let's let's um, or at least we have ten more minutes with Eric. I might I might go on a little bit after uh, if if we need to. But let's talk about what are the philosophies and incentives of McGibbon um, and the rest of the catastrophic global warming movement. And this is this is a point that we're not taught to think about enough. And then when I hear people talk about incentives, it's often in a very superficial way. Like, oh, you know, they just want power. Oh, they just want money. And that's not that's not convincing to people for good reason because it's hard to imagine that there's just this whole conspiracy of people who just who are knowingly do the wrong thing uh, and are just trying to lie to us and that's why it seems these claims of consensus are so compelling to people. But if we understand how philosophy and incentives work, it becomes crystal clear how this whole uh, this whole racket works. Um, but we know so far with with McKibben, there is he has some kind of, he is trying to get away with something. He is not being honest. He's claiming things are simple. He's claiming things are scientific and he's ignoring basically every scientific consideration you would need to take into account to have an intelligible viewpoint uh, on this issue. Um, And I want to just recall the Remember, it's very common for advocates of government coercion to invoke scientific certainty or near certainty to justify destructive unscientific policies. So now we're going to get into looking at, if we ask this question, we're going to get into why, why this is the case, because it's, it's a little counterintuitive. How can science go so wrong? And I just want to make the point that this is a lot easier to do if you watch the patterns of when this happens when you're dealing with unanswerable questions. So I have this example here. If someone claimed the speed of light is 200 million meters per second, if they claim that, that would be re- no. You couldn't put that over on the public, you because scientists would rebel against it. You can you can prove that it's you know about 300 million meters uh, per second. It's 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 refutable in that way. But what if you you're dealing with something that that you can't really know, and that the often That involves sort of predictive sciences or pseudosciences, then it becomes difficult because you can have a group of it incentivizes like a certain group of people who want to make a name for themselves or they have an agenda or whatever. They can go out and make a bunch of predictions if they have any PhD, they can claim to be scientists, and then if they're making up arbitrary stuff, then it's incumbent upon others to say, "Well, look, you're making up arbitrary stuff," but that's they have to go out of their way and they can't point to it's not like they have an alternative theory themselves because the point is there is no theory to be had or there's no kind of certain remotely certain theory to be had so it's a very big incentive for one side and a disincentive uh for others uh and so i mean the way the way i have it here is um you know, who's going to go out of their way to break down the sophistry? Some do, but it's a few, and of course they're called deniers. And then how much grant money will be available for saying something is invalid? Like, Is the government going to give a grant if you say, well, there's not the claims that global warming is catastrophic or arbitrary? Uh, if there's any kind of establishment in place, the answer is definitely going to be no, and even kind of on an interesting level, to to say something is not happening, or is effectively saying nothing is happening, which isn't really much to get a grant uh, for. And
0: and it should be noted that it's not just will the government give the money to these particular researchers asserting uh, imminent catastrophe. The question is whether the particular funding agencies within the government, who themselves, whose budgets are predicated on hyping this potential threat up, whether those funding agencies uh, will uh, will continue the money stream to these researchers?
1: Yeah, and that that gets that gets into this issue um, of establishment um, that I want to talk about. So, um, quick quick note on on philosophy, which were, which is here on the outline. Um, it's very important. I mean. One of the ideas, Center for Industrial Progress is a very philosophical organization. We basically think the philosophy of environmentalism, or as if we often think it's more accurately called anti-industrialism, needs to be replaced by a philosophy of industrial progress. And philosophy really pertains to two key issues. What are the fundamentals of thinking? Like, what are the fundamental principles and policies you should follow in thinking? And what are the fundamental principles and policies you should follow in action to do what's right? Right. And um, that those two ideas sort of converge in the, another central aspect, which is your view uh, of human nature. And with you know our belief is is that you need to use reason with extreme precision. And what we're accusing Mac- McKibben of here is using it, um, you know, in an extremely destructive way, or, or not really using reason or using a, a distorted version uh, of reason. And that's sort of, that's why it's important to be philosophical, to to be able to catch all these fallacies and to be able to do the right thing. But ethically, you have to know where is someone coming from? Because someone who's, McKibben is often called world's leading environmentalist. An environmentalist is fundamentally someone who believes that human beings must be subservient to the rest of nature. Go read his work if you don't, I mean, not this article because he's not focused on that here, but if you read his other work, it's all over the place. It really puts nature in a very similar position, or they might call it the ecosystem, to to a God uh, in religion, and that means that in, if you notice he spells planet with a capital P and nature with a capital n, so he, he, and he himself, you know he's a religious person, and, and these things are definitely definitely connected and you know one of the basic beliefs is that that transforming the planet is immoral, and ultimately self-destructive. And at Center for Industrial Progress, our view is transforming the planet is essential to human life, and done under a proper system means a system of property rights that protects everyone's rights is improving the planet. So you have to know when you hear us, you have to know our philosophy too that's relevant to evaluating our claims. Um, I mean, it is one of our claims in a certain sense, although we'll make it explicit, and McKibben will often hide his when it's when his philosophy is inconvenient, so th- this is the explanation why he doesn't—he completely devalues energy and he's obsessed with these alleged negative impacts because his pre-existing philosophy tells him that human beings are the scourge of the earth, um, at least insofar as they industrialize and transform the earth, and that transformation is evil and self-destructive. So why should he pay attention to the energy that you know multiplied crop yields that keep seven billion people alive? He's focused on the alleged destruction of the future of the planet with a capital P, uh, even if he is referring to models that have no uh, predictive value. And so this gets to the final thing of once you have, you, you're going to always have people with different philosophies, different ideologies. Um, but one, one important point about this is that when the government is involved and the government is incredibly in- involved in science, and I'll t- uh, hand this over to Eric in a second, it, it really, it creates a real monopoly and, and, and it really stops a diversity of views and a free exchange of views. Um, Eric, can you talk a little bit about like the government establishment in science since you've, you've been around it and how incentives work?
0: Sure. So, I mean, the fact is that all of the money and there's a lot of it that's, that's going into uh, climate science research is coming from government funding agencies. And uh, as I was alluding before, uh, the agencies, one, they have a long history of funding this stuff, at least since the early 90s. Uh, and two, their future funding is predicated on the idea that this, this problem is really serious. And if the problem were proven not to be serious, it would be extremely embarrassing uh, for all of the funding agencies and not just the scientists themselves, but the, the, uh, the kind of High echelon bureaucrats who are streaming billions and billions of dollars into these programs. So uh, there's a, and not only that, but it's not like there's a thousand different agencies out there. It's it's a much more centralized process where there are a, a handful of prominent agencies with a lot of money, uh, with a small number of uh, actual decision makers who are responding to. Uh, kind of the intellectual milieu the uh, the what 's in the air about what 's the new trendy topic, and they 're not only responding to that in 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 uh, a long term sense they're setting that uh, but the 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 important thing here is that uh, it's not a set of disinterested truth seekers uh, who are uh, attempting to funnel money to what they are convinced uh, by the balance of the evidence is the most uh, promising area of research it's an institutional structure in which people's careers are based on uh, the uh, the the catastrophic nature of this supposed problem the supposedly catastrophic nature all
1: right I w- um that's really helpful. I want to just run through a couple of these points the way that I, I formulate them. So we've got this idea, government is a central funder of, of science, and that, that necessarily creates a kind of establishment where it's deciding what ideas are good, you know, what ideas don't belong. And this is, this is um, usually consistent with the mainstream philosophy of the leaders and the cultures. And it becomes very self-reinforcing. So it, it decides what User ideas are worth pursuing and, and it makes or breaks careers accordingly. And, and by the way, it, this is wrong no matter what the ideas are. So once you've got this establishment, everyone has incentives to work within it. Um, and also, a point we've discussed, but it, it bears repeating, science is super specialized. So a given person, it's not like there are a million people who know all the details of climatology or even understand the basic problems. It's a lot of, quote, scientists or technicians in these tiny little micro fields. And so, so they, they're not in even a position to evaluate these big problems. So they just kind of absorb and they do their, they do their job. And, you know, when they're asked to sign a very vague statement... Um, like these societies make, which are, are the problem we discussed before. They equate global warming with catastrophic global warming and and bans on carbon emissions. Um, you know they they sign the statement. I mean they they trust the establishment, but they're not making these independent uh, judgments. And then and I'm, I'm Eric and I both know people personally to whom this applies. Anyone who tends against the establishment is going to be disincentivized. I mean. Who's gonna if if you if you're suspicious of the whole field in the first place if you think it's it's mostly government created or there's a lot of government created corruption why make yourself miserable Richard Lindzen leading climate scientist came on my show and said that you should not go into the field because he couldn't make people suffer what does that say I mean this guy is a leading guy at MIT um, so in undergraduate school and graduate school you're gonna get ridicule it's so hard to find a job in academia it's so hard to get accepted into journals it's everything. Is is stacked against you, and there's this whole establishment view. So the problems you then are attacking are how bad is global warming? Is it this bad, and what way it's bad? And your whole incentive is to find a new way that's bad. You're basically the the field of climatology, as Pat Michaels said on the show, is something like um, finding problems that are caused by global warming. That's that's become its mandate instead of understanding. Uh, the climate, because that's where all the money is. That's that's what they view as as their purpose. And then another key point is that the scientists themselves—it's not like they're getting together on a collective megaphone and announcing their conclusions. If they did, that would be way too much complexity for someone like McKibben. There, it's media people and governments that are trying to manufacture these artificial consensuses, and they themselves have you know their own views. So journalists like McKibben. He is taking his cues from the establishment. He's ripe to believe capitalism causes catastrophes. Those are the scientists he's going to call. Um, That's just the way it works. And if you go to the UN, I mean, there's anti-capitalists around the world. They have every incentive, every desire to kind of throttle the most successful companies and believe that capitalism uh, is destructive. And you you can look into this more. It's worth looking into. But the whole process is completely... um, Is from top to bottom, it's shaped by um, this government establishment, where certain philosophies combine with certain incentives to manufacture the appearance of this quote scientific view that is exactly the opposite uh, of science. Uh, Eric, do you have a couple more minutes, or do you have to go?
0: Uh, I should be out of here soon. Uh,
1: All right. Well, I think the rest of it I can handle. So, do you have any any closing comments?
0: Uh, well, just one additional aspect uh, in terms of the, the kind of the processes that go on, especially in the, the scientific bodies, the societies, um, there's also this, there are all kinds of levels of adverse selection here. So there's, there, there, there's adverse selection of the people who want to go into this field. There's, uh, there's adverse selection of the people who go into the kind of the funding racket in the government. And there's adverse selection of people who rise to the top in these political organizations which build themselves as, uh, as scientific societies. So it's frequently the case that there are agitators within the scientific societies who, whose main goal is to achieve a certain political outcome and who are themselves not even uh, reasonable representatives of that scientific field.
1: Uh, all right. Do you want to depart with any final words just to listeners, uh, or viewers, uh, hopefully about just, um, how to approach these scientific claims?
0: Uh, well, one is not, not to just resign yourself to never understanding anything. As I said before, uh, you, you've got to take a step back and you've got to do two things. One is to gauge, uh, the larger society that's, uh, producing the institutions, uh, that are, that are funding and making possible this research and as we're talking about before, what the incentives of those institutions are and uh, to, to kind of realize that societies with different ideological directions tend to produce uh, scientific claims that are conducive to that ideology, uh, whether that ideology is good or bad. Um, and the, the second point I wanted to make is uh, about the ability that you have to simply compare the results of a given program of research to those of other programs of research that have demonstrably bettered human life, and so you can compare climatology to uh, to techn- various kinds of technology, to various other sciences, and you can ask, what have they really delivered that that doesn't demand taking them on faith as a layman that they're actually producing results. And when you do that, you'll find very little evidence in favor of the proposition of catastrophic global warming.
1: All right, Eric, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the program and uh, we'll speak soon.
0: Okay. Thanks.
1: All right. So thanks again to Eric Dennis for being on the show. Um, So When we look at this whole system of incentives, Uh what we have got is the result is that uh, I wrote it down here because I wanted to just sort of uh, remember it precisely. A journalist religiously attached to an anti-capitalist and I'd add anti-industrial, anti-transformation of nature philosophy uses some bogus math. Vague appeals to science, out-of-context weather events, and citations of virtually worthless computer models to claim that it's simple that capitalism and fossil fuels are terrifyingly bad and confidently calls for the destruction of industrial civilization's foundation, as well as condemning the energy producers who work day in and day out to produce that foundation. And this, again, is the power of philosophy it can be it can be profoundly influential someone's philosophy their method of thinking their view of ethics their view of human nature can be profoundly influential for good or evil in terms of thinking we have to be really careful use concepts precisely not in this vague interchangeable way where we're package dealing you know create, making these uh, packaging global warming and catastrophic global warming We need to use math precisely, not just throw out numbers to intimidate people who don't know better. We need to know what we know, what we don't know. We need to always keep the full context. Um, And always ask, I mean, maybe my favorite question is what I have concluded consistent with all the facts. And, you know, I'll say when we do our work at CIP, spend a lot of time refuting each other, criticizing each other finding finding ways in which our views are wrong, or there's some aspect of them that's wrong that needs to be modified, some articles. And it's really, it's really offensive to see someone put out where the something where the entire methodology is just all completely inconsistent with the facts and defiant of every principle of reasoning I've ever learned. I'm mean, they're just completely dogmatically accepting this philosophy that man, That for man to transform our environment on a large scale is destructive, even though that contradicts all of history, even though, um, you know, we can, on other occasions or on our website, you can read about how uh, philosophically, economically, scientifically, the exact opposite is true. Transformation improves the planet. Um, And they do this, and then they participate in this establishment, they... You know, either create the incentives, or they eagerly lap them up, and the end result, as one of my my colleagues uh, put it, is they tell us that food is poison, and poison is food. And unfortunately, I don't think enough people have been pointing this out. I don't think there's really been an explanation of how to think about these claims, uh, how anyone can think about these claims, how anyone can realize that this article is horrific is is really unjust i mean it's unjust to the energy industry it is um terribly threatening to the country to the extent we listen to it whatsoever um and it is it is profoundly uh profoundly dishonest and i think you can see here that there is that That this is a viewpoint, that our viewpoint, that these methodological points about how to think about these scientific claims, those can really change the way people think about this catastrophic global warming issue. So Eric and I decided, let's put our money where our mouth is. We will debate Bill McKibben. He can take any climate scientist, any ethicist, any person in the world he wants on stage. Duke University has agreed to host it. We'll pay him $10,000 for someone who scorns money. I hope that's sufficient. Um, And we want to debate him on the topic of the morality of fossil fuels so we can talk about all the global warming issues, but also all the philosophical and ethical issues because he has declared the fossil fuel industry to be public enemy number one, planetary enemy number one. I believe that it's demonstrable that they are one of the greatest friends the public has ever had because energy is the foundation of all that's amazing in your life. So whatever you I'm recording this on a Friday, I'm not, um, it might not come out until Saturday or Sunday or Monday, but whatever you do today, whatever you enjoy, whatever comfort you have, whatever technology you love, whatever food you love, uh, whatever people you love that you can spend time with, remember that they're made possible by energy. And that means they're made possible by fossil fuels, which we produce because they are the best, cheapest, most reliable form of energy devised uh, to date. So for now and for the past, all our things being equal, we should be profoundly grateful um, to the people who produce those. And even if it turned out that there was some real, catastrophe the the kind of tone of this article is so uh is so inappropriate we would regard it as very sad that that this incredible benefit carried with it some incredible cost and i'm sure that the people in that industry would uh you know would change their ways it's just this it's so easy to demonize people as yeah they just want to kill everyone that's not true these people who are you know, just friends of mine who work on oil rigs, these guys do it because they it's interesting work because they believe that they're fueling civilization. And I believe it too. And no one has come close to proving otherwise. And there is unlimited evidence that it is true. So the people who want to shut down uh, the fountain of civilization, that uh, they're doing it because of a bad philosophy not because of any three simple facts. So, Bill McKibben, bring whomever you want. Alex Epstein, Eric Dennis, Duke University, $10,000. Let's see how our views stack up. It's one thing to write an article in Rolling Stone. It's one thing to do a podcast without you here. I'm willing to put my views and Eric's views against your views And anyone you can get as the world's most prominent environmentalist, you should be able to get the best of the best. And I believe if you honestly watch what we've had to say today, that you will see that there are fundamental problems with the way you think about these issues. My ideal would be that you refuse the debate because you acknowledge that that article uh, was completely unacceptable and fundamentally false. But if you think you're right, you know where to find us. Alex at industrialprogress.net. And you, the audience, come on. You know, this debate has to happen. You need to see these views against one another. You need to see the world's leading environmentalists go up against the world's leading organization of industrial progressives. So, first things how can you promote the challenge? Call McGibbon's office. Promote the challenge ever. I've got the links right here. Uh, Bitly McKibben Challenge. Facebook.com slash The Pursuit of Energy. That'll just give you updates. Refer people to industrialprogress.net. Here's our Twitter accounts, Alex Epstein, Bill McKibben. Twitter the heck out of Bill McKibben. Keep harassing him. Do not stop. I use harass literally. He deserves to be harassed. He has said something profoundly destructive. He should apologize for it. It has now been formally refuted. We've spent probably an hour and a half doing it. He has a YouTube account. He has the capacity to go on YouTube and watch this. Um, he's been made a more than fair offer at a prestigious university. Um, and, in, and, you know, one of the debating partners, I won't talk about my own uh, credentials, but is, you know, an extremely uh brilliant physicist there's no reason there's no reason to turn that down except if you're afraid you're going to lose now if you're afraid you're going to lose that's understandable but then then recant and then join us in the battle for uh industrial progress but you know you got to promote this as i say here cip is the first real organization to offer a positive alternative to environmentalism. We have the philosophical horsepower, the scientific horsepower to really change the way people think about these issues. Uh, And we're going to start by debating Bill McKibben, and we'll see where the chips fall. So last thing, be creative. Think of anything you can um, to promote this. This has to happen, okay? The world needs to see this debate. If we can get this debate to happen. Uh, then we will have an enduring example of what it means for the environmentalist view and its claim to scientific certainty to go up against the industrial progress view and our view of science. And it'll be right before you and we'll make it a nice long debate, nice and civilized, and the evidence will be right in front of your eyes. I'm willing to put my reputation on the line. Eric is willing to put his reputation on the line. What is Bill McKibben willing to do? Bill, let's do it. Please accept. For everyone else, again, do whatever you can to promote this. Thanks for joining me. I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.